Hello friends, this is Pastor Joel. Uh, in the sermon, An Inoculated Army, uh, we covered some basic uh, principles, Bible principles, involving God's inoculation principles, or more simply, His health principles that He's laid out in His Word for, for His army. Uh, that particular sermon was not exhaustive, but hopefully there was enough detail to encourage you to begin studying these principles out more thoroughly on your own and practicing the principles of health yourself so you can be inoculated against sin and disease uh, as God would have you to be. Now, one thing I do wish to mention before I get into this supplement, this supplemental uh, message uh, to that sermon, is my statement regarding the eating of fruits and vegetables together at one meal. This seems to have caused some confusion, and I want to try and clear uh, this up if I can. But before I get into that, let's have a word of prayer together uh, so that we can uh, uh, have the Holy Spirit directing our thoughts. So let's bow our heads, please. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study the principles you have laid out in your Bible for us. We pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to be very present. Give us understanding and wisdom. This may be new to many people, and, uh, Lord, may the Holy Spirit soften their hearts and minds. May we discern the truth so that we can have healthier, happier lives and be inoculated against sin and disease and be better fit uh, as a member of your army to finish the work you've given us to do. We thank you so much for Jesus, and we pray this in his blessed name, for he's so worthy. Amen. Now, I want to try to, to clear up some of the confusion uh, that some have uh, concerning my statement about eating fruits and vegetables together at one meal. Uh, I wish to quote a few statements from the book Diet and Health, Scientific Perspectives by Dr. Walter J. Veith. Now, for those who've never heard of Dr. Veith, he's one of the foremost scientists teaching creationism in the world today, and he lectures around the globe not only on the subject of creation versus evolution, but also on the effects of animal diseases upon mankind, not to mention diet and health. Uh, Dr. Walter J. Veith, he's a professor and chair of the Department of Zoology at the University of Western Cape in South Africa, at least the last that I've seen he was. Uh, he holds a B.S., uh, uh, Honorable Cum Laude, and an M.S. in Zoology from the University of Stellenbosch, and a Ph.D. in Zoology from the University of Cape Town. He's also the author of The Genesis Conflict, Putting the Pieces Together. Now, I want you to notice what Dr. Veith says about fruits and vegetables. This is quoting from his book again. He says, Fruits and vegetables are both essential components of a healthy diet. Fruits are rich in vitamins and minerals, and they require a shorter digestion time than do vegetables, as the principal sugar in fruit is fructose, which requires no further digestion. Vegetables, on the other hand, consist mainly of complex carbohydrates and also have a different ratio of soluble to non-soluble fibers. Because of the differences in composition, fruits and vegetables have different digestion and stomach retention times, and the eating of fruits and vegetables at the same meal can lead to fermentation in the stomach. And that's very important to understand. That's why we don't want to mix uh, these things. He goes on, he says, Symptoms produced by incorrect combinations include fatulence, halitosis, and all conditions associated with an acid system. 
vegetables take on average two hours longer to digest than fruits, and it has been suggested that fruits be only eaten by themselves. However, the consensus of opinion is that fruits and vegetables combine well with grains, nuts, and legumes, but do not combine well with each other. The digestion of the protein component in grains, nuts, and legumes in the stomach takes place rapidly, and provided that the system is not subjected to free fats, animal proteins, or excessive quantities of high-protein foods, this digestion takes place rapidly enough to prevent fermentation. It is therefore not necessary to eat fruits only by themselves, and a breakfast consisting of grains and fruits is therefore not only compatible, but advisable, particularly for young children who need high-energy foods to start the day. Again, that's Dr. Walter J. V. from uh, his book, Diet and Health, Scientific Perspectives. That statement is from page 146. Now, like I mentioned, the reasons for not, to, not mixing fruits and vegetables has to do with the digestive processes. And when we mix fruits and vegetables at one meal, the vegetables slow down the digestive processes, thus slowing down the digestion of the fruits, which allows the sugar in the fruits to ferment in the stomach, and that's not good. Now, another issue that caused confusion is what then should be regarded as fruit and what should be regarded as a vegetable. For example, most of us eat tomatoes with our vegetables. Are we to stop doing this? Well, Dr. Veith gives us more insight into this, again from his book. He says, Biologically, the products of a blossom containing seed must be considered fruits. However, in terms of their composition and also their common usage, some biological fruits are more like vegetables in that their principal carbohydrate is not fructose, but complex carbohydrates. To confuse the issue further, some fruits and vegetables are neutral and produce no adverse effects when combined with either fruits or vegetables at the same meal. The neutral vegetables are mainly the high water content vegetables with very low starch content and the neutral fruits are largely the high fat content fruits such as avocados and olives. So that's very interesting. There are some fruits, he says, that don't act like fruits, <laughs> basically. So, on the following page in his book, Dr. Veith has a table that shows what are fruits, what are vegetables, and what is neutral and can be mixed or combined with, with either. And I'll try uh, here to get through this uh, without uh, maybe confusing you. Uh, but, but listed in the neutral category, uh, he has this. Under all grains, he has barley, buckwheat, bulgur, corn, millet, oats, rice, rye, sorghum, wheat, etc. That's grains. And under legumes, under all legumes, the legumes he has carob, chickpeas, kidney beans, lentils, lima beans, peanuts, soybeans, etc. A lot of the beans, you see. Uh, under all nuts, he has almonds, cashews, Brazilians, chestnuts, coconuts, pecans, walnuts, and like fashion. All seeds... He has linseed, poppy seed, pumpkin seed, sesame seed, sunflower seed, etc. Now, he has a, a, a column where it says some vegetables. He has cucumbers, herbs, lettuce, sprouts, tomatoes, with a question mark he has, 
and watercress. And under some fruits, he has avocados and olives. Now, this is all listed as neutral. In other words, you could eat any of these with fruits or with vegetables. So, I hope that this clears up some of the confusion that may have been caused uh, by my statement in regard to mixing fruits and vegetables uh, at one meal, mixing them together. Uh, it would behoove us, though, to study these things out for ourselves and act according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit in this regard. Amen? Now, I want to take a look at some scriptural misconceptions uh, concerning God's inoculation principles, and maybe more specifically, the diet of man. I mean, I, I've observed some interesting methods of Bible study uh, since becoming a Christian. For example, many people diligently search the scriptures not really to find what they have to say, not really to find the truth, but simply to gather support for of their own ideas, their preconceived religious ideas. Their minds aren't really open to be taught by God's Holy Spirit, and therefore they can manipulate the texts to mean exactly what they want to believe. I've run into this over and over and over. Uh, one of the great basic principles of Bible study is to search out the truth on any given subject from all the texts in the Bible. You can prove almost anything you want to prove by using a single isolated text of Scripture, that happens all the time, sad to say. In fact, there are some religions that have uh, principles that are based solely on one to two scriptures. And that is why, friends, it's so important to bring together the consensus of what uh, Moses and David and Jesus and Paul and other inspired authors have to say on the subject. Now, depending upon the subject, that may involve a hundred or more verses. And even then, there still might be some confusion because, let's say, five or six of those hundred texts may seem to contradict the rest. So, let me ask you, should we um, discard those, you know, half-dozen verses since they don't appear to harmonize with the others? Well, of course not. They should be given special study, I believe, in the context of of surrounding verses, and also in comparison with the ones which are in agreement. Usually it'll be quickly discovered that the ambiguity exists only in the person's mind, and the total Bible picture is the perfect focus and unity. I have a friend who says that when you take the text out of context, you're left with con. And someone else has said that a text without its context is a pretext, and I believe that too. This is particularly true of several strange verses, I'll say, which have been a stumbling block to thousands of earnest Bible students. But under careful scrutiny, these problem, you know, quote, problem texts are found to be in harmony with each other and also with the rest of Scripture. The problem usually rests in, in us, in how we are perceiving that scripture, or, or dealing with our preconceived ideas, or how we were raised, etc., instead of, instead of letting the Bible explain itself. Now, the four scripture, uh, scripture references that we shall examine are in apparent conflict with scores of other clear declarations scattered throughout the Old New Testaments on the subject of proper diet. But before we begin, it's important to affirm some of the points which God has made through the writings of His servants. Entire chapters in the Bible, such as Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, have laid down detailed listings of the clean and unclean categories of animals 
that uh, uh, God allowed to to for man's diet. And since the original diet prescribed by God included no meat whatsoever, you can read that in Genesis one twenty nine. Friends, we can be absolutely certain that no forbidden, unclean meat was included in the diets of those who lived before the flood, those who followed God's law. After the flood, even though clean animals were introduced to the diets of the eight survivors due to the universal destruction of all vegetation, no unclean animals were permitted for food. God commanded the preservation of clean animals in the ark by sevens and the unclean animals by twos. You can look at Genesis 7 for that. So obviously this allowed only for the clean category to be eaten while the male and female of the unclean animals were preserved for perpetuating that particular species. And it's very interesting to note that the post-Diluvian lifespan of the human race fell from around 800 years to about 150 years due in part to the addition of flesh to the human diet. The flood experience also demolishes a popular argument uh, used by those who insist on eating both clean and unclean animals. They claim that the law of unclean foods only applied to the Jewish people. I've heard this over and over and over. But is that what the Bible really says? No, it can't be correct. You see, because there were no Jews in Noah's day when God himself laid the restriction upon the entire human race. Furthermore, the Bible declares that the forbidden meat, uh, that law will still be in effect at the second coming of Jesus. We read that in Isaiah 66. And we found all this to be true the last time we were together. But now let's look at uh, the four most popular arguments used to support the eating of unclean meats. Okay, The first misconception is found in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 11. Now, at first sight, this verse seems to support the arguments for eating whatever a person desires to eat. It says here, Jesus said, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. I've heard this several times, Matthew 15 11. Also, you know, I can eat whatever I want because it's not what goes into me that defiles me. Now, think of that common sense wise. I mean, does that mean you can eat um, pure garbage? <laughs> does that mean that you can eat the, the feces of other animals or etc.? I mean, now come on, let's think about this. I mean, without consideration of the context, this verse, though, it does seem to be saying that we may eat anything without being condemned or defiled. But when we examine, which we must do, the context, the larger context, we examine the entire chapter, we find that it has nothing to do with diet. That's not what Jesus was addressing here. From verse 2, we learn that Jesus was dealing with a controversy by the Pharisees who insisted that the disciples give their hands a ceremonial washing before they ate food. The purpose of this bath was to cleanse away the defilement of touching any Gentile person or object, you see. And Christ condemned their hypocritical tradition in verses 3 through 10, declaring that they were worshiping him in vain by teaching man-made laws. Then in verse 11, he made the statement about defilement coming out of man, not going in. Afterwards, Peter asked Jesus, 
He said, Declare unto us this parable. You find that in verse 15, Matthew 15, verse 15. Now, this statement proves that Christ's words were not to be taken literally because a parable is merely a story or statement to illustrate a point. So, Peter, he was saying, This is a story, this is a parable. Please uh, uh, explain it to us. And notice. As you continue on in Matthew 15, notice how Jesus explained the meaning of his figurative statement. He says, uh, Are ye also yet without understanding? This was his response to Peter. Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever enter, uh, entereth in the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out in the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Now, I think the whole story begins to clear up for us here. Jesus knew that these religious leaders had murder in their hearts against him. And yet their greatest concern was not over those evil dispositions, but only for a foolish tradition based on prejudice. Christ called those inward sins by name, and then he declared this. He said, These are the things that defileth a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. And that was the meaning of his parable. It did not refer to eating food but rather to ceremonial washing. Now, some have been confused by the addition of three words in Mark's account of the same incident in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. There Jesus is quoted as saying, It cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draft, purging all meats. But does the expression, purging all meats, there, uh, does it indicate that anything put into the body is somehow sanctified as wholesome and healthful? Well, of course not. Again, Jesus is highlighting the fact that true defilement comes from harboring spiritual uncleanness in our mind. Physical food passes through the purging processes of digestion. It's separated from the body, while sin remains as a poison. This was his point. So I hope that clears that first misconception up. He wasn't speaking about food. He was talking about sin and defilement in the heart. Now, the second misconception is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Paul said this, as he wrote to Timothy, he said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, friends, by carefully considering the context of these words, really we find nothing out of harmony with the rest of the scriptures. Apparently, some specific end-time group is described uh, that forbids marriage. 
that is full of hypocrisy and is demon-controlled, in essence. And in addition, this group commands its followers to abstain from obviously clean foods, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, as Paul said. Now, uh, I don't want to dwell on the identity of these evil perverters of the gospel, but to dispel the idea that merely praying over food can make it good to eat. And that's what some people take from this. Paul affirms that any created thing in the food line is acceptable as long as it meets two tests. This is what he's saying. First, it must be approved or sanctified by the Bible. This is what he's laying out here. And second, it should be prayed over with thanksgiving. So, please take note that both of these requirements must be, they must be met in order for the food to be suitable for the Christian diet. And incidentally, the word meats in the original language is not limited to flesh foods. The Greek word broma here simply means food. Okay? But I want you to think about it for a minute. Do these verses suggest that, oh, what? Moles or bats or rattlesnakes may be sanctified for food by simply praying over them? (laughs) You know? What about cockroaches or rats or toads? Well, no, of course not. Nothing is made suitable unless it has passed the first test of being approved by the Word of God. Those principles, those things he laid out that we read before in uh, Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 11. If the Bible says it's clean, then and only then can prayers of thanksgiving be assured the seal of God's acceptance. So I hope that clears that one up. And perhaps the most common misconception used to support the eating of unclean meats is this third misconception that's found in Acts chapter 10. This is where, you know, the story of Peter and he has this vision of the sheet that's let down from heaven. But I'll tell you what, friends, when you study this, and this is the theme that we're finding, people are pulling things out of context to justify what they want to do. And they've done the same thing here. When you study it in context, we can clearly understand the true meaning of Peter's uh, strange vision, you could say. And due to some time constraints, I'll leave it up to you to read this chapter on your own. Um, but let's look at this for, for a moment or so. As a Jewish convert, Peter held the opinion that all Gentiles were unclean and therefore unworthy of salvation. He wouldn't preach to them. He wouldn't have any type of social interaction with them. So Peter received the vision just before messengers arrived at his Joppa home from Cornelius, who was a Gentile centurion. Now God had instructed Cornelius to send for Peter, and his servants were practically at Peter's door when the faithful apostle fell into a trance upon the rooftop. And, you know, uh, they had flat roofs back then, and that's where a lot of times they would they would build an upper room where they would use that they would use for meditation or prayer and this is where Peter happened to be and he fell into a vision here and in that vision Peter saw a great sheet descending from heaven filled to overflowing with all kinds of beasts and birds and you know creepy crawly animals Three times Peter was invited to eat the collection of creatures, and three times what did he do? 
Did he say, thank you, Lord, I'm glad I can eat anything I want? No, he didn't. Three times he was shown, and three times he refused. And each time a voice declared, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. That's Acts 10, verse 15. And then finally the sheet was lifted back into heaven. Now at this point, let me make some crucial observations. Peter's response to the invitation to eat establishes a very important point. In verse 14 he said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So the first thing we can see by this statement is that everything on the sheet was previously described by God's word as being unclean and unfit to eat. Peter's statement also proves that during his entire three and a half years with Jesus, he had never seen or heard anything that made him accepting of unclean meats. In other words, Jesus did not change the prohibition against eating these forbidden animals. Because if he had, Peter would have known about it and he would not have responded as he did. Does that make sense? In fact, the context of Acts chapter 10 reveals that Peter at first did not understand the meaning of his vision. Verse 17 says that Peter doubted in himself what it meant. And again, verse 19 says Peter thought on the vision. So, he was confused there. He didn't understand it. And while he was trying to figure it out, guess what? The three servants sent by Cornelius knocked on Peter's door. He listened to their account of Cornelius's vision and then had the men spend the night. And the next day Peter returned with them to Caesarea where Cornelius had his family and friends gathered together there. Now the crucial point of the entire story is found in verse 28. And this is, people skip this. They don't even go there because it checks them in their view. Okay? This is where the disciple tells how the vision had been explained to him. He addressed the, the Gentile assembly with these words. Acts 10, verse 28. He said, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come, into, uh, come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I can eat anything I want now from now to eternity. No, that's not what it says. It says, but God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Acts 10.28. Read it yourself, friends. So here we plainly see that God had used the vision of the sheet to teach Peter that he should no longer shun the Gentiles. The vision had nothing to do with eating and drinking. In fact, it was used because Peter understood what was unclean when it came to food. And that's the avenue God used to reach Peter about his association with the Gentiles. Makes perfect sense. It was addressing Peter's attitude toward people, not toward food. In fact, if Peter would not have been obedient to the health uh, laws, then the sheep would have been a very poor tool to teach him a lesson concerning that prejudice. Which is what I said just a minute ago. And what a dramatic lesson for that early church, friends. And it's a lesson that all of us should learn. From this moment on, 
be quick to correct those who try to apply this vision to any cleansing of unclean animals. Jesus didn't die on the cross to change the nutrition of animals, friends. Okay? This actually proves quite the opposite here. And then presses home one of the greatest lessons for Christians everywhere. Count every individual of equal worth before God and make every effort to win that person to Jesus Christ. That's the lesson that he was trying to teach Peter, and Peter got it. Now, the last misconception that I'm going to deal with here of the four is found in Romans chapter 14. And because many many readers have lifted words and phrases out of their logical setting in this chapter, some strained interpretations have been created. Um, there is a very important common theme running through the chapter. Almost every verse relates to the subject of judging, a problem which was, well, it was malignant in the early Christian church, and even in, many times in the church today. In order to understand the counsel given by Paul in Romans chapter 14, we must first recognize the parties involved in the judging and the issues over which the judging was taking place. Okay? There were two main groups in the early church. There were the Jewish Christians who had been converted from Judaism, and there were the Gentile Christians who had been one from heathenism. Now these two groups, they didn't get along very well. They were constantly judging each other, it, it seems. And the Gentile Christians judged the Jewish Christians because they were eating meat which had been offered in sacrifice to idols. Okay? To the Gentile convert, such food was unfit to be eaten. Even though he was now a Christian, he could not forget how he once offered food to idols, and in his mind, the eating of such food was connected to idol worship. The Jewish convert, on the other hand, had no such remorse because he had always acknowledged only one God and naturally felt no guilt about eating the meat, which had been sacrificed to idols. It was sold in the marketplace at a cheaper price, and the Jewish Christians considered it a bargain, you see. Now let's read the, the first few verses of Romans 14 concerning the brother who was weak in the faith. So we're going to Romans 14, verses 1 to 4. Paul here, he says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful dis disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Paul asks. Now, can we, by comparing other scriptures, locate the weak brother here, who Paul's speaking about? Can we also locate the problem which created the judging situation? Yes, we can. Paul had to deal with it at considerable length in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 8. Notice his description here in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 9. He says, As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak 
is defiled. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Okay? So here we locate the weak brother that Paul's talking about in Romans 14. He was the Gentile Christian who felt that it was sinful to eat the meat which had been offered to idols. Paul agreed with the Jewish converts that there was nothing wrong with the food, since since there's only one God after all. But he advised that the food not be eaten in front of the Gentile believers because it might become a stumbling block to them. So compare this language with Paul's counsel in Romans 14 and verse 13. He says, Judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 11 and 12, Paul asks this question. He says, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. See how important this is? Not to be a stumbling block, if at all possible. And compare that statement with this one in Romans 14, verse 15. Paul said, Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. And also, verse 21, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. So, obviously, the accounts in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are referring to the same problem here. Identical language is used in describing them, and the same judging was taking place in reference to the problem. One more point needs to be clarified. The meat in question was not unclean meat in the biblical sense, friends. The question only revolved around food that was esteemed unclean by the Gentile Christians because it had been offered to idols. The Jews would buy it at a bargain because it was an approved uh, meat for them, according to Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. And actually, the heathen didn't offer swine or other unclean animals in their sacrifices. Uh, you can read about that in Acts 14, verse 13. That establishes that. So when the Jewish Christians bought the food, which had been offered to idols, it was not wrong in itself, as Paul pointed out. It became wrong only when it offended the weaker brother, or the Gentile Christian, who esteemed it to be unclean through association with the false idol. See, with the idol. Some of the Gentile believers were so strong against it that they abstained from meat altogether and ate only herbs for fear they might eat some meat that had been offered to idols. And in Romans 14, 1-3, Paul urges the Roman church to receive such people and honor their conscience. It was not a moral issue and should not be permitted to divide the church. This is what Paul was saying. And so, by examining these apparent contradictions in the Bible relating to diet, we've also discovered the root of theological confusion in today's religious world. A simple understanding of the circumstances behind the writing enables us to grasp the words and phrases in their original format and to recognize the harmony and unity of Scripture, friends. And think about this fact carefully. If certain animals were identified as unclean before the flood, if they were still counted as unclean when Peter rejected them in his vision, 
If they are still called unclean in Revelation 18 verse 2 where it speaks of unclean birds and if Isaiah declares that all who are eating swine and the abomination at the time of the second advent will be consumed how can we feel that they are now fit to eat? I'll ask you, when did they become clean? Did God have a a reason for forbidding the use of certain animals for food? I mean, God doesn't ever act in an arbitrary way, and we have no indication that the, the prohibition was based on ceremonial or shadowy sanctuary issues. And as far as can be determined, all of the forbidden categories are so classified because God wanted His people to be healthy and happy. They simply were not suitable for human consumption, and God told His people not to use them as such. Now, we've already established that Jesus never communicated any change in the dietary laws to Peter and the disciples. Now, I want to quickly examine an incident in the life of Christ which will show clearly whether or not He regarded the unclean animals as appropriate food. But, first... Let's review a principle which appeared uh, often in the mystery of our Lord. He was never wasteful, was he? You read all the Gospels, you find that he was never wasteful. I mean, do you recall how he commanded the gathering of all the scraps of food following the feeding of the multitudes? On two occasions, Christ specifically ordered that nothing be thrown away. The scriptures even detail the exact number of baskets of food which were salvaged from the two miracle feedings. You know, twelve baskets, seven baskets. You read that in Luke and Mark. Now, with this principle in mind, not being wasteful, please consider his experience with the inhabitants of Gadara as found in Mark chapter 5. Here, Jesus is confronted by a demon-possessed man. The demons ask Jesus to cast them into a herd of swine, about 2,000 swine. And he did. The swine then ran off a cliff into the sea and drowned. Now, why did Jesus allow the destruction of that herd of animals? I mean, was he aware of circumstances that related to the owners and their very un-Jewish occupation as pig farmers? Well, it seems so. <laughs> but one thing appears beyond all question to me. Jesus did not consider the swine to be suitable for food. I mean, would the one who commanded leftovers to be gathered from the feast destroy enough pigs to feed a small army? It's really impossible for me to believe that our compassionate Savior would needlessly allow such a waste of resource when the hungry and needy were on every side. My only conclusion can be that Jesus did not view the animals, which his father had declared an abomination, as acceptable items of diet. I'm going to share this with you. One Bible writer says this about this incident. Jesus allowed the evil spirits to destroy the herd of swine as a rebuke to those Jews who, by raising these unclean beasts for the sake of gain, had transgressed the command of God. Had not Christ restrained the demons, they would have plunged into the sea, not only the swine, 
but also their keepers and owners. The preservation of both the keepers and the owners was due alone to his merciful interposition for their deliverance. Isn't that remarkable? I'll tell you, friends, as I close up here, what God has called an abomination is still an abomination today. The inoculation plan that God has, as He's laid out in His Bible, has not been changed. It is still valid, and yet we are held to a higher standard today. For we, the last generation, have been given more light than any generation before us. We must live according to our present truth, which includes all truth to this point in time, friends. Truth is progressive. We are held accountable for all the truth that's been given up to this point in time. And God is preparing a people to stand alive at His second coming. These people will reflect His character perfectly in order to do this, friends. In order to be among that group, we must be obedient to all the principles that God has given for our perfect health. We must reject the indulgence of forbidden foods, not because they are distasteful or unhealthy, but because God says they are not to be taken into the body temple. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to obey Jesus? Well, I do, friends, and I hope that you do too. May the Bible principles unfolded in this book form the basis of our Christian lifestyle. And as Paul said, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your word uh, explains itself. That we use right Bible principles of study and we use context and common sense and and, and principles upon principles, line upon line, it explains itself. I pray, Father, that you will be with those who, who are, have misunderstandings, have these misconceptions, that, that the Holy Spirit will work within their minds to, to straighten that confusion out. I hope that what we've talked about today helps in that cause. Please help us to be prepared and to prepare others for the soon coming of Jesus and to hold to these principles and have healthy, happy lives until Jesus comes. We pray in Jesus' blessed name, for He's so worthy. Amen.